you can call it meditation, but um, more like a visualization um, of sorts, um, which doesn't necessarily imply entering into a meditative state, although that would be the ideal, recalling them, let's say, um, uh, became uh, somewhat widely introduced around uh, in the middle of the 17th century by Dhyan Chandra Goswami, Gopal Guru Goswami. Hmm. Prior to that, the Rupa and Jiva Goswami, the founding charges, uh, teachers of the of the architects of the of the lineage, uh, they didn't uh, introduce anything like that. Nothing wrong with what Dhyan Chandra introduced, but it became well, kind of a wide practice of a way in kind of getting a a handle on and materializing, if you will. An esoteric uh, concept with uh, um, recommended visualizations and uh, and so on, and so customarily, then in these uh, lineages that embraced this, when initiation was given then a letter would be given also that you were initiated on this date and so forth and these are the gurus in your lineage there's there's one who's given initiation his guru his guru his guru there's a list of the names and along with it is a list of the names of who they are having entered into the leela of krishna as krishna's friends gopis and so on and so that um became a standard practice in many of the lineages to the extent to which the earlier approach of Rupa Goswami didn't include that kind of a detail, um, a kind of an innovation, um, was thought by some when practiced in our line by Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur to be some type of deviation, even though what he recommended, what he taught, was uh, more uh, in following what Rupa and Jiva had written about in the uh, in the middle of the 15th century, 100 years, hmm, middle of the 16th century, 100 years earlier. Not that the two are necessarily opposed to one another, but the latter is some details that could be incorporated or or could not be incorporated. But the practice became instituted in such a way that it, that the fact that Rupa and Jiva Swami had, hadn't addressed that became obscured and it was assumed as if almost that was uh, has always been the practice. And so when the way in which Rupa Sanatan emphasized the approach to Rag Bhakti, which was was taught by Bhakti Siddhanta. Some people in various lineages thought this was some type of deviation. Um, he's not giving initiation with letter and the names of the previous gurus. And so, how can you, 
how it, it, it's it's kind of like the story of the, the the sadhu who sat to give class on the Bhagavad Gita, and when he sat to give class, a cat came and started to meow. So the cat was a bit of a disturbance. So the guru was, he said, "Give the cat some milk." Hmm? They gave the cat some milk. The cat quieted down, and the Bhagavad Gita discourse commenced. So the next day they sat, sat again for the Gita discourse, and again the cat came, and again to give the cat some milk. And so it became a regular practice that before the speaking of the Gita, the cat would come, they'd give the cat some milk. After some time, the, the guru died. His successor came. The cat was still coming. And so they would give the cat the milk, and the Gita course, discourse would continue. And then the cat died. And then they thought, oh God, we can't speak the Bhagavad Gita unless first you give the cat some milk. So we've got to get another cat. Hmm. So details can be adjusted over time and in different circumstances in order to deliver the essential uh, principle, hmm, the essence. The form can be adjusted to deliver the essence, but oftentimes, unfortunately, the form can also obscure the essence, and the, and the detail can obscure the principle, be identified with the principle, and the very detail that was implemented in prior times to deliver the principle now becomes an impediment to embracing the principle. Hmm? So this is a common occurrence. Um, in, 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 in religious traditions and probably in other type of traditions as well to some extent with the institutionalization of an idea that transcends institutionalization um, the institutionalization is created to make the idea more accessible I likened at times Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to a waterfall of ecstasy his ecstatic uh, transformations that, that he uh, underwent bodily transformations were extraordinary. There's nothing like it in the history of, 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 of sainthood cross-culturally. It's not to make less of any other saint, but it's quite uh, extraordinary the kind of uh, the way in which physically the internal ecstasy that he experienced manifested in his body. His joints would sometimes become dislocated. Blood would pour from the pores of his body. He would weep tears that would bathe people in front of him. And looking in their eyes, it would cause tears to come out of... Looking in his eyes, it would cause tears to fall out of their eyes. Hmm? His complexion would change colors. He would fall into a, a swoon and so on and so forth. These things are recorded by many... Uh, by all of his biographers, of which there were at least a dozen learned people of the time. So it was quite an extraordinary uh, event. Hmm? When the Orientalists, the first uh, European scholars, came to India and sought to deliver the Indians from their pagan um, religions, as they thought, to the one true religion, then they employed the scholars to investigate their religious texts and so forth. And they came to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, they said, well, he must have had epilepsy, obviously, um, because of descriptions of his of his coming unconscious and falling into trance and so forth. But of course the simple response is that epilepsy is not contagious and 
whatever he was about was contagious. As I said, his tears, looking at them, would cause other people to weep in ecstasy. Hairs standing on end and so forth. So very extraordinary. So I, at at times, have compared it to like a waterfall of ecstasy that you kind of have to stand back from and in awe of. But his immediate uh, and empowered uh, disciples, the Goswamis, they made, if you will, a lake out of the waterfall in the form of their literature by which they sought to to locate the, the embodiment of ecstasy that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was on the map of India's sacred texts that are common to all uh, schools of Hinduism. Hmm? It was a great uh, f- uh, literary uh, feat, if you will, and they did a good job of that. And so the lake, in the form of their writing, made the ecstasy approachable and understandable. Later on, that's kind of a soft form of institutionalization of the spiritual essence. Later on in time, uh, you get the more harder form, if you will, of institutionalization by way of forming a group, uh, you know, giving giving it a corporate name and so on and so forth. building buildings. I mean, they did erect some temples at the time and so forth. Anyway, so the institutionalization is, is has the right thing in mind, and, and in fact, it's quite often essential, but it, it's, um, it's then the taking of the essence and, and trying to uh, present it in a way that's relative to the time and circumstance that people may uh, imbibe it, uh, taste it, ingest it, digest it, uh, and so forth. So those details are um, adjustable according to time and circumstance. But again, sometimes they get the upper hand. Hmm. And so uh, with regard to that idea, when uh, some persons with that problem in relation to the issue that you're mentioning where's your letter with your list of names and so forth. I have responded, as you have said, just to bring everybody into her question. Um, that's all well and good, but in a thousand years, in two thousand years, in three thousand years, if your lineage is going to go on, you're going to have a pretty big, long list of, of, of names to remember and meditate on in ten thousand years. So obviously, this is something that's nice, a nice meditation to meditate on, to contemplate. I offer my respect to my guru, who is the disciple of so-and-so, who is my param guru, who, who, and so forth. It's, it's a, it's a, this is a kind of the portal, if you will, through which the teaching comes, so to acknowledge it back to its uh, origination and so forth. There's a beautiful, prayerful um, uh, um, way of absorbing the mind hmm, with respect for the ideal in terms of how it's come to me and so forth, which should help me to understand it because the idea, the concept, is one that, that, it, that, that true understanding of which transcends reason, it will be understood by worship. If we want to have attained perfect knowledge, we uh, need a perfect method so the method for acquiring knowledge 
through sense perception is, is imperfect. Our senses at night, we could see a tree and think it's a person. So our sense of sight is, is imperfect. Um, other than sense perception, of course, there's, there's reason. We can reason, we can perceive with our senses that there's smoke coming up from behind the mountain, and we can reason, therefore, there's a fire behind the mountain because where there's smoke, there's fire. So these are standard w- ways of, of knowing how we know we know epistemology. Um, according to our tradition, there these ways of knowing have value, relatively speaking, but they cannot afford us perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge meaning the knowledge by which one feels perfectly content without any need for knowing anything else. Generally, we need knowledge in order to inform action by which we can pursue becoming perfectly content. So if there's a kind of knowledge that that makes us so content that we don't need to know anything else, this is our definition of, of perfect knowledge, which, which then ends action in the normal sense of the term. Hmm? Action in relation to sense objects on my part um, with attachment to this sound, attachment to that taste, and so forth, which then creates an identity in my mind of what I think I am. I like this, I don't like that, this is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad. Um, all these perceptions uh, result in a sense of I. We are kind of I. My I is defined by my sense of my. My good, my bad, my happy, my sad. Defends who I, defines who I am. But nothing is really mine, so the I that arises out of that my or desire in relation to sense objects is as false as the idea that anything is mine or that my reading through the senses is perfect. My reading says it's too cold, your reading says it's too hot, which is it? The answer is it's neither one. Those are each both faulty perceptions hmm? that bring impressions to the mind, and the mind makes some kind of determination. Of course, here we're referring to the mind in terms of how it's described in the, in the, in the, in the, in the yogic world, the subtle body with its, with its different divisions of manas, which would be mind, uh, buddhi, intellect, citta, hankar, ego, so forth. So, um, <clears throat> so the whole idea of uh, uh, real uh, spiritual practice, to the, or, or yoga, if you will, is to come out of the world of the mind, hmm? which isn't very comforting even to me, although I... I feel justified in expecting everybody else to be comfortable within it, which is rather unreasonable. Hmm? So to come out of that, hmm? when we come out of that, within it we are allowed to think that we're, we loom large, or think or act as if, without maybe even consciously so, but act as if I am the center around which everything is, is, is turning, if you will. Um, so we're allowed to think an illusion that, that I'm large, so to speak. When we come out, we find we're small, but we come in touch with that which is actually large, our source. And the source is friendly, as it turns out. Hmm? So acting as if I'm the source is rather unfriendly, 
if you will, in relation to the source, and thus our path, if you will, materially is one that, that could be analogous to uh, swimming uh, upstream against the current with logs coming <laughs> coming the other way that <laughs> we have to dodge and, and so on and so forth. So this is the material kind of predicament or uh, uh, perception. So, so if we want to arrive at the perfect knowledge that 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 it is not unreasonable but transcends the reach of reason, it will tax all of our reason hmm, to, if you will, uh, attain the motivation to engage in transrational practices. In other words, the transrational practice, for example, of chanting, it's not a rational practice. It's not irrational. We refer to it as a transrational practice. There's a lot of reasoning to it. We could speak for hours about it. There are volumes of texts about it, philosophy, theology, so on and so forth. Hmm? So it's not unreasonable. It's supported by reason. And in one sense, the reason underlying it culminates in the understanding that reason itself is a faulty instrument for or tool for arriving at perfect knowledge. It it has its range, its realm, its jurisdiction where it would be useful. Hmm? Hmm. But it's it's limited. For every reasonable argument there is a reasonable counter argument. The sutras say Tarko Pratishtanat by reasoning you never get any firm standing. Any reasoning can be uh, uprooted by by another reasoning. You, you listen to debates on various issues. You will take a certain side because you're psychologically disposed towards a certain idea, as unbiased as we try to be. We are psychological, emotional beings. Hmm? <laughs> um, and uh, as objective as we try to be, I mean, real objectivity comes from yoga, where you transcend the mind. Hmm? Right? and the perceptions of mine and I and so on and so forth that we were talking about earlier. You may wear a white coat and look at the world through a microscope or a telescope, hmm? but you're still a human being. Right? <laughs> you may wear a white coat, but that doesn't mean that you're Dr. Spock of, uh, of Star Trek, right? without any human emotions. Hmm? Um, so... Of course, this is the whole whole problem. Who was it? Thomas Kuhn who wrote about it decades ago. Uh, the the, the uh, you know the the the, the built-in uh, bias to the scientific uh, uh, enterprise that you really can't do away with, which makes it very difficult to, to, to for for example in science to change paradigms for the new paradigm to be accepted the old paradigm to be let go for the classical Newtonian per- physical physicist perspective to be uh, seen as incomplete, although it was thought to have, have figured out everything and there was no place for consciousness. <laughs> if you, you, that's, that's supposed to <laughs> not quite a complete explanation of everything. But, uh, it was thought we, you know, we'll figure out how to reduce that to matter in due course. But then, of course, the quantum perspective came, and that's that. That 
to fully embrace the implications of the quantum perspective is very difficult because people don't understand it. Nobody does, practically. Although two-thirds of our economy is run on, on the basis of it. Hmm? Um, it has very earth-shattering implications. Hmm? So, But to fully embrace it means that the ground underneath this is going to shake. And, and it was kind of comfortable. We thought we you know, had figured it out in so many ways. So better just ignore the implications, use it, it, it prag- pragmatically for gizmos and gadgets and, and uh, in, in the name of improving uh, uh, our uh, human life, which it made to some extent. But anyway, to shift par- paradigms is difficult because of the human bias, which may cause us to dismiss certain evidence that's the, that doesn't fit with the common uh, consensus and so on and so forth. Um, so... Yoga, of course, is about transcending all these biases. It's a different method hmm, than just trying to be reasonable. It seeks to go beyond the limits of reason. It's a withdrawing of the senses from the things that they're attached to and a deconstructing of the identity that arises from those attachments. That that, that means we're going to do a scientific experiment and it's on you. (laughs) <laughs> you, you are, you are the, uh, you are the subject. Hmm? Here are the tools. Now you have, to, and you have to do it to yourself. You have to work on yourself. That's so very uh, a bold uh, and courageous uh, ad, ad, adventure. And few people succeed at, at a time. Hmm? Hmm? In bhakti, it said, "Nehabikumanashusti pratyavanaviditi." Everyone will succeed, but a few at a time. <laughs> if we see a saint here, a saint there, uh, over the over the over the decades, and they loom very large on the landscape, uh, the human landscape, what they stand for. They loom. If we really look carefully, what the Jesus is, what the Rumis, the Chaitanyas, uh, the Saint Francis's, uh, what they embody, what they stand for, what their basic Besides their mystical, perhaps, differences, or the, which is their room for the common ground that they stand on, it's very either very frightening or very, very, very inspiring. Mm. Um, it uh, it really does speak of survival of the you know through through kindness, if you will. Mm. Um, uh, they stand, I like to say, like like lighthouses on the shore speaking to us who are adrift in the darkness of night, in an ocean of material ups and downs in our emotional life and our attachments. We try to, like, make it level, uh-huh. and then the tidal wave comes, and we're looking for land. These sadhus stand like lighthouses in the dark. There's land. And what is the difference between water, in this analogy, and the land? Not only is the land ah, ground to stand on, hmm? I arrive, I am not this body, I am Brahman, I, I, am, I am Sat, I am Chit, I am Ananda, I exist, I am not subject to transformation of birth, death, disease and old age. That's like, I'm now out of the water, I'm standing on the ground, goodness, I'm Sat. 
and I have a chit, I have a kind of knowing that that is complete and that it's satisfying. Hmm? I don't feel this need anything else to know. And then and if I look, not only am I standing on the ground, but there's vegetation, there's there's variegatedness on land, there are so there's an adventure, that's the ananda. Hmm? Ananda means differentiation. While we want to move from the false differentiation derived from sense perception and the determinations of the mind, which are false, it's not hot or cold, hmm? we want to come to unity, do away with the false diversity, stand on the ground of being that we all uh, have in common, that we are all part of, that we're all grounded in. Hmm? But then that sat, that's jit, but then what about ananda? Ananda means love. It means bliss. What is, the, what is bliss? Variety is the spice of life, hmm? as we say in common English parlance. Ananda may be translated as love also. Love requires movement. Hmm? We're moving now. It looks like we're moving, but we're going up the down escalator. Whatever we acquire, it eventually slips through our hands, and we still owe something for having taken it. <laughs> that is the karmic uh, price. Hmm? So again, we have to return. Again, we have to return. Hmm? So to come out of this kind of unsettling existence and, and, and stand peacefully or sit and I know that I am. I am not this. I am not that. I think I'm American. I'm Costa Rican. I'm Mexican. I'm Indian. I'm black. I'm white. I'm Hindu. I'm Catholic. I'm man. I'm woman. I'm not this or that. But in all of the I am this or I am that, which is changing, there's something that remains constant, and that is I am. That's for sure. I'm not this or that, but I am. If I was not, I couldn't think I am this or that. An I does, I'm not this or that. That I is false, but there has to be some I to even make the determination. Hmm? That I am the false determination, that I am this or I am that, mistaken identification. So I am. Hmm? I am. This to, to arrive at this is very comforting. It's like standing on the shore. But to experience the, the full potential of the Atma, the self, uh, in terms of Ananda, love, then there needs to be differentiation. Now, this differentiation is not like the false variety that's a perception in material life through the senses. This is a, which compromises unity because the differentiation that arises from sense perception puts me at odds with you and others to one extent hmm, or another. But there's, there can be differentiation or variety that does not compromise unity, that, that ornaments unity, that decorates it. Hmm? So this is the idea of Ananda fully played out. Hmm? That within the unity, that uh, deconstructs the false variety, hmm? there's a prospect for diversity in love, movement, Variety, so different sentiments for loving God in different ways, and, and God appearing in different ways, corresponding with that love. That's not just a, a sentimental love arising out of this, I'm an American, I love God like this. Hmm? 
but a wise love arising out of Vedanta, out of having deconstructed the false self, the, the, the egoic self, which is, again, a courageous, adventurous pursuit. Deconstructing that, then we simultaneously, if it's done in the context of bhakti, begin to construct an, an identity in relation to the Godhead, which will uh, ornament the, the unity of transcendence. Mm-hmm. If you throw a stone in the pond, another stone, another stone, it will cause ripples, and it will be disconcerting compared to the, the peaceful pond. But if you throw all those stones in the same place, it will also cause ripples, but the ripples will be concentric. Mm-hmm. And the peace will become beautiful, if you will, beautified. You hear beauty in this analogy means love. So we want peace and we want love, both. Hmm? So these, this meditation, if you will, this contemplation of the, the saints and so forth given to you in the letter, which was a practice, still is in some circles, it's a nice idea. Hmm? You have to understand the principle behind it. The principle behind it is it's one of the ways in which you could engage in a, in a kind of a trans-rational practice. If there's a perfect way of knowing, what is it? It's the, This is what it is. The hands like this. Hmm? In other words, an appeal to perfection that it might make itself known to imperfection out of its perfectness it has that capacity. If the finite wants to know the infinite, how will it be possible for the finite to know to know means to rest. I've got it. Hmm? How can the finite know the infinite? The math does not uh, equate to such a proposal. However, if the infinite, out of its infinite capacity, chooses to reveal itself to the finite, then what was not within the power of the finite unto itself becomes possible, such as the nature of infinite. So perfect knowing means to position oneself in such a way that perfection might reveal itself to us. Hmm? We're used to a knowing, kind of fighting our way out and, and, and acquiring the knowledge and so forth, but this is a different way of going, going within, hmm? humbly, putting one's hands up, help, prayerfully like this. Hmm? It has great power. It's to, under- to understand one's own limitations is uh, is a real strength. Hmm? So, the effort in bhakti hmm, is to get grace. So we use our head to soften our heart. Hmm? So this particular practice that you ask about is one in which it's a beautiful practice. But it's a detail. It could be, could be done in other ways as well. The principle is respect the, the teachers, the line. And of course, if you're getting something, you're naturally going to respect it. It's not like a law, but you feel it. I've got something valuable here. I, 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 I cherish it. I regard it. Um, and of course, in, in Hinduism, you know, there's a way in which we show that. All this bowing and stuff. I guess part of Hindu culture, it's a very beautiful culture that is uh, very reverential. And, and accepts the possibility of learning anywhere and everywhere. Hmm? The music, the teachers become gurus, the father becomes a guru, the elder brother becomes a guru. Hmm? Mahaprabhu said, Kiva Vipra Kiva Nashi Sudra Kenanoi, Ye Krishna Tattva Veta Se, 
Boy, my guru is anyone who, who can instruct me about about Krishna, and so in a broader sense. So this reverential, um, if you will, um, approach. It's said uh, that if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So love is a way of knowing that which you could not know otherwise. You approach the world lovingly. That means without a view to exploit it for the purposes conceived by you, that you being that small I that arises out of attachments and so forth, the world's not going to cooperate with that. (laughs) It's not. It's moving around a center, and that center is not us. So... Uh, we and we may try then with this kind of understanding to approach the world in a more loving way for example the environmentalist approach to the world hmm, is more loving let's say than the uh, well the non, you know the non the, the, the naysayers of uh, to uh, whatever climate uh, warming the, when I was a kid it was the people who would throw the trash out the window before the, I remember seeing the first signs, don't litter. Again, imagine that probably. Don't litter, $50 fine. You'd think, huh, you have to tell people that? And I just throw beer cans and cartons out the window as you drive and so forth. <laughs> so there's people who still would be doing that. <laughs> they get backed up by the environmental you know, uh, uh, push that began, well, it really began... Uh, the environmental problem kind of began with Christianity in Europe, but um, the reaction to it in the, in, in the 60s mm-hmm. in, in, in the United States, I think it was probably the beginning, 60s, 70s. Um, and um, uh, so those who, I want to say, don't have the most loving approach or have been, had to be backed up. Now they don't litter, but they keep resisting, they keep resisting. But So anyway, the point being, in environmental um, sensibilities that people have today is a, is a kinder approach to the world. They discover things about it, by it that they would not otherwise, perhaps. It becomes more apparent to them to the integrated nature of nature. Um, if the wolves become extinct... In uh, Yellowstone, then there will be problems. You reintroduce them, and so many things will be resolved. And there's this kind of documentation has, is, is available and so forth. It's very in, in, insightful. Still, the environmental approach to the world um, is a little short of a yogic approach. You can see where it's connected and kind of going in that direction, but. Um, we generally want to make the earth safe so that we can continue to you know, enjoy it on, on some level, if you will, continue to exploit it on, on some less uh, uh, harmful degree and so forth. Uh, going to become a bre- vegetarian? Okay, what about, what about the bugs now? You have to become a breatharian? I mean, it's good to be a vegetarian, but it's hard for some people. It's harder to become a breatharian. And, and and still you got to breathe once a month or something, you know. So what, so we see the really properly understood spiritual practice. It's ego effacing in any of the great traditions. Quality yoga 
is to, again, go beyond this sense of self that, that's identified um, with, the, with the sense objects of, of the world, uh, to some extent, to, just, to deconstruct that ego altogether. Then you become, even, even in participating in it, you become, you're, you're not an exploiter any longer. Hmm? Um, because you're participating in it from the vantage point of the center, as the center does, you are conforming with that. Hmm? So the world starts to work for you and so forth. Hmm? And so this is to approach the world, for example, here, with love. And if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. So what is the secret that this approach to nature, the yogic approach to nature, in the full sense of the term, reveals? Does it reveal a less cruel, a more kind and considerate way to do the same thing that we're doing? Hmm? Which is taking birth, growing, maturing, for the most part, giving off progeny, diminishing, dying. That's what we're doing. And do it again. And do it one more time. And again. Hmm? As long as we are, if we are a conscious entity constituted of consciousness, but we're identified with matter, the show of matter is always changing. Hmm? We're attached to it. We remain in relation to it. And the change will include another body, hmm? another configuration of the same stuff, if you will. So to go beyond this, this is the idea of, 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 of yoga, of spiritual practice. Hmm? And so it really constitutes loving in the full sense of the term. And when we approach the world, let's say the natural environment that, we, that, we, that we, we, we live in, with this kind of yogic love or wise love, we get a secret from nature that, that the merely environmental perspective will not reveal. Hmm? What is that? The secret of nature is that she has a soul, and it's us. That in human life, hmm, the self that is ontologically different from, from nature, hmm, consciousness, experiential reality, as opposed to experience, an experienced reality, experience will not arise out of non-experience. Hmm. It's a good thought. Don't expect, at some point, non-experiential stuff to organize itself. Huh? Right there's a question. How does non-experiential self organize itself? <laughs> the very fact that matter is known to be self-organizing hints at the idea that there's intelligence to, 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 to existence. Hmm? meaning, purpose. It hints at that. But it's often ignored in the, in the scientific community. It's just a phrase, self-organizing matter. That will organize itself in such a way, this non-experiential stuff, right, 
will organize itself in such a way as to suddenly start experiencing. That makes no sense from the yoga perspective. I don't think it makes sense from any 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 vantage point. Hmm? If if you take a billiard ball and you hit it with a cue, how many times, you, you know, however many other balls it hits, or there's no way that you think you could make that pool ball adjust it in such a way. Would speak of it adjusting itself to say, "Ouch." Could you put a little more chalk on the stick? Something like that. So so experiential reality. I mean, really, there's such a gulf of difference between experience and non-experience that you cannot rationally place an experiential reality within the chain of what's thought to be material, biological evolution. The biological evolution, as it's understood, is these developments that have some conformity with which, with the prior state. Hmm? There's a connection. There's no connection between experience and non-experience. They're like uh, miles apart. That's that's, that's not sufficient to explain it as such. They're categorically different. Hmm? But the materialistic paradigm, again, people are reluctant to move away from, away from it because it's 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 earth shattering, if you will. Hmm? Uh, it's, uh, so we have values that go with our materialism, even if we don't think we're a materialist, philosophically speaking. Hmm? Materialism, in different, gone by different names, physicalism, naturalism, and so forth is the dominant uh, philosophy of the world and everyday people are influenced by it without even thinking about it, without even realizing it. And certain values arise out of it. Mm -hmm. And then what's called progress arises out of that. But (laughs) is that correct? Mm -hmm. Is materialism... Are we... I mean, are we machines... Mm-hmm. That's materialism. Mm-hmm. There's no will. What's the fir- what's the value of a conversation then? What's the value of trying to convince anybody of anything? Mm-hmm. It's meaningless. If there's no will, what's 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 there to what's there to what's what opinion is there to change? <laughs> Do you understand? There's no it 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 guts the meaning out of life that that. Um, makes uh, intellectual discourse meaningless. If actions, movement, is random, hmm? then the same has to be said for intellectual discourse, reason, and so forth. Hmm? Therefore, if we're having a reasonable discussion, so-called, and I say something unreasonable, doesn't matter. <laughs> so this, this is this is this is the you got to go to the root of materialism because the fruit of materialism, hmm, the fruit of materialism, it tastes good at first, 
but it's like the apple of the eve or something like that. It tasted good, but there were implications, apparently, that were uh, in the story that were ramifications that were uh, troublesome from the Garden of Eden into, you know, whatever. Hmm? Struggle for existence. So the fruits of materialism, the, 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 to improve your tastes and your uh, titillate your ears and titillate your eyes and titillate your, your, your skin and titillate your intellect. Unhinge intellect from revelation and you can just intellectually masturbate away hmm? and think of anything. It could be like this, it could be like that. And of course the thinking will be tied to our attachments and so forth. So then, and then we, you know, within materialism, we call it pride, but is materialism correct? That's the dominant idea, philosophy. Hmm? So, to come out from this, this is what spiritual life is about. And therefore, the loving approach, in a yogic sense, this wise love, it reveals the secret that nature has in her womb. Hmm? While there, there are different species and so forth, um, there is something that animates them beyond the, the, the biological and psychological complex. It's consciousness. Hmm? It, it's pan, pan. There's a pan psychic reality. Consciousness is everywhere. It's underlying everything. Hmm? It manifests itself relative to the vehicle that it is identified with. So you don't expect it to manifest within an insect vehicle the same way that it will in a human vehicle, although there will be something the same. Therefore, now they're finding. Insects have egos. Ten years ago, that would have, you would have been thought to be, you would have been thrown out of the, the college, if you will, the, 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 um, you know, the, the community of, of, uh, paid, uh, Whatever professorhood, <laughs> whatever you would have lost your your job, but now that they're actually finding, they're finding some 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 common ground in other species with humans, which was thought, you know, according to Descartes, that well, animals are just machines and humans are are different. Well, he had a good idea in one sense, if we stretch his idea. That consciousness is different than matter. In Indian society, thousands of years before, this idea was understood and better understood, and it was not at the cost of, of the natural world. Again, that was the beginning of the environmental crisis. Man is different than, 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 than nature. Hmm. Mind. Only, only man has mind. Hmm. And, um, and so nature can be done with whatever you want. There's no, there's no soul in it. There's nothing. There's no spirit to it. Do whatever you want for man's purpose, and God wants man to be happy. So do whatever you want with the world to be happy, and to be happy means to satisfy my senses and prosper materially, and, and so on and so forth. And here we are today, hmm? um, and it's not working out that well. Hmm? So again, if you love someone. They'll tell you all the secrets. The yogic approach to the world is one in which nature steps back because we step back from her, from exploiting the sense objects for the enjoyment of that false self, 
Hmm? We start to deconstruct the false self. We let go of the sense objects. Then we interact with the sense objects only in relation to the to the center, hmm? the actual center, which is pleasing to them. So nature is pleased, and so that she gives impetus to push us in the direction by which by which we can know something that she herself can't reveal. She can point to it. Hmm? In the lower or less complex forms of life, nature's providing the necessities. Consciousness in, a, in an animal body, in a tree body, doesn't have the necessity to know why. Why am I? What is the meaning? But in the human vehicle, we have that consciousness has, has that necessity. It facilitates that questioning about itself. So nature can't answer that. That's a consciousness question. Consciousness is different than nature. But nature turns us in the direction of where we can know. Hmm? And, and, and that to go in that direction, we have to go prayerfully. We have to go beyond merely a physical or intellectual um, exercise. And so the folding of the hands, as I say, perfect knowing. So it's a nice practice anyway. Uh, give you a roundabout answer, right? But nice practice, but there are other practices by which it could be done. And obviously, yes, it's a detail because in ten thousand years you're going to have how many teachers you're going to have to remember. And by the time you get done reciting all their names, you know it'll be time to start over again, Um, which might not be a bad thing. But uh, it just uh, and you bring it up in relation to pictures on the altar. So we have a series of pictures of our teachers on the altar. So how, we're going to have to get, make make the altar bigger and bigger and bigger. What's going to happen here? Hmm? Right? So how to think about that. Where to draw the line. Of course, we then just common sense, and we laugh, and it's good, and, but the common sense often escapes us, unfortunately. Hmm? Uh, and again, details obscure the principles. So there was a time when, believe it or not, there were no cameras goodness hmm? uh, and, uh, and and there weren't always artists to draw pictures of saints and make sure they're on the altar and so on and so forth so um, so you have to embrace the spirit of it the spirit of us we should we should and we, we naturally will respect and have regard for our teachers if they're actually teaching us something hmm? if we're not taking advantage of their teaching then we may lack regard, and, and that can become an impediment, obviously, to our, our practice. But in principle, to regard them and remember their names, to contemplate them. Um, these are people who, even passing from the world, have their remembrance has power uh, to help us in our, in our present, because they lived a life that embodied the way, if you will. So remembering it gives strength to us and power to us, and Gives us a sense of camaraderie that that you know there may not there may be many people I'm surrounded with they're not interested in this and, and the world is going another way but there are certain people and they're very extraordinary here there's some documented information about them I can t- contemplate that and that can give me strength to be amongst them hmm? they're they're actually the many hmm? in the larger idea that this small world is a small idea within kind of a a narrow idea. Hmm? We're inside the narrow idea. The narrow idea is, 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 is inside of a larger conception. Hmm? They're part of that. 
So the principle is to is to remember. And there can be different ways in which we can we can uh, do that. Uh, we have usually some some mantra describing the teacher. We recite it, so forth. Hmm. How far back to go, and so on. Hmm. In one sense, as far back as there is some contact by which you're being helped. So, uh, to put it really essentially, who is the most important guru? I may have, there may be different guru. Who is the most important guru in one's life? Is it the Siksha guru, the Diksha guru, the Vartva Pradarsha guru, the, the Sannyas guru, the Ragmar guru? We have all these names for different types of guru. Well, the simple answer is, and the spiritual answer, whoever helps you the most is the most important guru. Hmm? And so, as we're being helped, we naturally show regard. We remember their names. So, however far back, I mean, um, you know. Now, of course, we record history in ways that previously, uh, in pre-modern times, which are not bad times, they didn't look at history in, in, in the same way. The stories, the myths, and so forth were ways of describing how the, what the people believed, which is really what's important, in a sense. What do the people think? How do they feel? What's their understanding of life? Do, is that not a his, history that we're interested in? Or do we just want to know, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened? <laughs> so the mytho-historic approach, if you will, is... is the stories of the pre-modern time, which which sometimes are referred to as are myths, are explanations of what they believed and felt, what, what their values were. Their values are found in the stories. So it's a history of their values. Hmm? It's a really good history, actually. Hmm. What they cherished, what they thought was important, and so forth. Hmm? Hmm. So they, those stories give us a, a view into that. And if we look at that, we think, well, they had some pretty interesting <laughs> ideas. They, they're very attractive, actually. Hmm. They're rich with meaning, and they, they, they make for a sacral kind of universe rather than this empty dust bowl of, of <laughs> the modern uh, perspective of, of, uh, of, the, of the natural world. Hmm. Does that help? Sridhar Maharaj got uh, very upset when uh, uh, one of his followers... Uh, Took one of the pictures off, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, that's a story, but... Um, um, that was the guru of his guru, right? His guru was Bhakti Siddhanta, and Bhakti Siddhanta's guru was Gorkishore, and the devotee took it off with a certain idea in mind. But um, um, that's a little different. And, and he was corrected for that. He was told to put it back on. Uh, but here you see, you know, you'll see, you see the picture of Bhaktivinoda at the end. Some altars, they have Jagannath Das Babaji there. Uh, but then before that, there's no pictures and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's just a practical uh, kind of a call. There's a reason that Sridharmarsh reacted in that way because of the thinking of the devotee, who, why he did that, and so forth. 
wasn't it wasn't because there wasn't enough room or something like that or the numbers had grown it was for a different reason so thinking him not important because he only had one student so and Chidamar said yeah and that one student was my guru <laughs> he's big it's not how many you have it's the quality of the uh, he should be respected so it's a little bit of a different uh, circumstance that caused him to respond in that way what else Yes. Thank you for that um, you know, beautiful exposition. I, I think you kind of answered some of the questions, but it's pretty basic compared to what you just said. I was going to ask about the role in um, your lineage and in this practice and this uh, teaching of some of the basics of yoga. You mentioned yoga, and I think specifically, like you mentioned, sense withdrawal. Concentration, maybe even pranayama. Mm-hmm. Does that fit into your how, or how does that fit into your Right, yeah. Well, classically speaking, yoga is a different discipline from Vedanta. Mm-hmm. The Yoga Sutras are different than the Vedanta Sutra. It's a different approach, it's a somewhat different uh, philosophy. But is there what their approaches to transcendence, hmm? and um, so they have a lot in common. That said, further, yoga as a philosophy embodied in the sutras, yoga sutras of Patanjali, is really more a practice than it is a philosophy, hmm? and so it's often thought to be the practice by which the Sankhya philosophy ideal could be realized. So these two ancient schools, they, they kind of go together, Sankhya and Yoga. So the utility of Yoga as a methodology, hmm, we find that it's been exploited, if you will, in a, in a good way, by many different disciplines. Therefore you have Karma Yoga, you have Hatha Yoga, you have Jnana Yoga, you have Bhakti Yoga, this Yoga, that Yoga. Now it gets a little out of hand and you've got Sleep Yoga and Sex Yoga and whatever. But... Um, but yoga, by its very nature, uh, as a method, lends itself to be to adaptation to an approach of transcendence, and so it includes elements that any approach to transcendence will include, like sense control, control of the mind, withdrawal of the senses, and so forth. Now, uh, there are certain angas or limbs to the body, the angi of yoga itself, yama niyamas, right? Hmm. Um, bhakti as a school has its own uh, angas or limbs as well hmm. um, but uh, by those limbs uh, the same things and, and more arguably are, 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 are accomplished and um, and kind of basically speaking a lot of the uh, the goals are the same to control the senses, to control the mind. So, for example, um, you can sit and focus the mind on one thing and try to withdraw it. Or you can take like we do. We have a mala of 108 beads. And we chant... Uh, uh, the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra on it. So we're focusing on that. Hmm? And we're using the tactile sense to touch the speeds made from the sacred Tulsi 
and so forth. So there it is. It's a practice for focusing the mind, which in, in Patanjali's system, it's not mentioned, get some beads, chant this mantra, and so forth, but the same, you know, you're gonna, when you do the japa, we call it japa, on beads, it's a type of meditation, then you're going to sit, you're going to sit quietly, and, and so forth. So, so there's similarities in that way. Some, in some of our texts, it's recommended that pranayam should be done before chanting the mantras. Hmm? So, you know, it kind of clears the head, so to speak. And, and uh, so there's some overlapping in that way. Um, um, in yoga, there is what asana, and the whole asana is you know, these are connected. It's not now they take it as an isolated thing. Asana is over here for this or for that, but asanas were for the goal, as pranayama was, and to concentrate, to meditate, to go into samadhi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's even asana siddhi, to be able to sit in the asana for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so, again, now they disconnect the, in the entrepreneurial approach to yoga, asana, from the whole system, often. But um, uh, so, so we sit in asana also, uh, in, 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 in the meditative asana, the, what is it called? I don't know. The lotus asana. And, and uh, we do japa. Um, and um, and some devotees do pranayama before uh, their, their, their meditation, their mantra. Pranayama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara. Pratyahara means withdraw. So we withdraw our mind from sense objects by the positive approach of focusing them on Krishna, hmm? rather than just trying to withdraw them. Hmm? Um, our approach is, again, a loving approach. So if you love someone, then things that are not related to loving that person would not be favorable to it. You give up automatically. So our withdrawal or our renunciation arises out of a positive approach. If this is not favorable to bhakti, then I give it up. Hmm? If it's not included in what constitutes loving Krishna, then I'm not interested in it. So there's a with pranayama, the pratyahar, withdrawal, pratyahar. Dharna means concentration. Hmm? So we have this in, 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 within our, we have hearing, shravanam, kirtanam, chanting, smaranam. Smaranam means remembering, and there are divisions of it. This is one of the limbs of our school of bhakti. The divisions within smarnam are smarnam, which means simple mental remembrance of Krishna, maybe the stories about Krishna and so forth, mental remembrance. Smarnam, pratyahara, with actually effort to withdraw at the same time, so that when you, you're thinking of Krishna, then your thought goes elsewhere, you... you, you Consciously withdraw it, right? Mm-hmm. Bring it back. This leads to uh, dharna, the, the ability to actually concentrate mm-hmm. without distraction, which then, in our school, within smarnam, leads to uh, dha- um, I said dharna to 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 dhyan, actual meditation, which is not thinking, mm-hmm. but a suspension of the mind. In dharna, you are suspending the mind with some effort. Hmm? In dhyan, the mind is kind of arrested 
it's suspended for some period of time, for as long as the the, the existing karma doesn't come to interrupt it, to bring you back, so to speak. So dhyan, so we ha- within our smarnam we have smarnam, uh, uh, pratyahar, dharna, dhyan, then druvanasmriti and samadhi. Druvanasmriti means that the dhyan becomes constant, druva and fixed. Druva means fixed, honest, uh, fixed remembrance for a long period of time turns into samadhi. So that there are some crossover, similarities, and and so forth. Hmm. Thank you. All right. We'll stop there. Sri Sri Guru 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 Guru